0: Anine Sego and welcome to episode five of the Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Podcast, Land Restitution as Reconciliation. This episode features presentations on key issues of reconciliation vis-a-vis ongoing tensions around land and land rights. We begin with Esme Murdoch, San Diego State University, with her paper, Speaking Land Speaking Ourselves. Next, Dimitri Panagos from the Memorial University of Newfoundland presents on reconciliation, duties, and distributive justice. Finally, we have a presentation entitled, Territorial Loss and Reconciliation, written by Avery Kohlers, University of Louisville. In his absence, Avery Kohlers' paper was presented by Burke Hendricks.
1: So I'm Esmene Um I just wanted to begin, um, before I start my formal talk, by sort of uh, positioning and situating myself in relation to this work. Um, so. Um, I was born in the U.S. and I, in the context of the U.S., I am descended from enslaved Africans and European settlers. Um, So I wanted to to position that sort of um, identity in terms of what I'm going to talk about. Um, Increasingly, the role of land is becoming an oft-discussed, theorized, and contested site within both scholarly and activist discourses about reconciliation. Part of the work being done in literatures on reconciliation and justice, especially when related to land-based is to get the question or issue of land largely through the realities of land dispossession on the table of reconciliatory discussions. However, this goal has proved continuously difficult and complex due to largely incommensurable conceptions of land and land justice as informed by different epistemological, uh, cosmological, and ontological standpoints, aggravated by dominant society's refusal to dismantle settler colonial frameworks to move toward justice for all involved. A concern I have observed from reading non-Western scholarship on reconciliation is the overdetermination of understandings and conceptions of land by dominant groups of would-be reconcilers as object, commodity, and private property. This overdetermination transports an assumption that what needs to be reconciled in interhuman land-based conflict is simply humans' more equitable access to the good of land as commodity. However, this assumption is violent and fundamentally misunderstands or refuses to perceive the ways in which different human groups have various and incommensurable conceptions of and relations to land, excessive of this largely Euro-Western prescription. In this way, part of what reconciliation means, especially for indigenous and Afro-diasporic peoples, is a reconciliation framework attuned to the agency of land as wedded to the identities and survivance of peoples. I interpret part of this meaning of reconciliation to be the inclusion of land as agent in reconciliation work. I would like to propose that investigation of what the land says to us as we speak and advocate for ourselves as belonging to land is a profound sight and practice of longing for land in a way outside of the imaginaries of dominant capitalist and colonial structures, perhaps a way of being and healing that coloniality could and cannot imagine. Often the assumptions and pre-understandings built into Western Euro descendant frameworks of reconciliation are only made apparent once there is a conflict or lack of fit to the situation in which these allegedly universal and objective theories and models are applied. One such epistemic misfit or mismatching, as I call them, occurs when reconciliation is attempted between groups who have long and complex histories of land-based conflict, such as settlers and indigenous people, as well as settlers and racialized minoritized groups such as afro diasporic peoples. Both indigenous and afro diasporic groups have distinct and diverse cosmological purviews that articulate different conceptions of land and relations to land. These conceptions of land and land relations are informed by various and robust ecological histories, ecological heritages, and ecological identities. As many theorists and practitioners of repair via reconciliation are coming to understand, Western Eurocentric models and theories of reconciliation are not universal or universalizable to all situations. In fact, indigenous and afro communities globally are protesting and rejecting the imposition of Western understandings of healing and moving forward as further continuous instances of refashioned familiar violent relations such as neocolonialism and neoliberalism. One important aspect of cosmological assumption and understanding that acts as an intense uh, site of incommensurability regards conceptions of land and relations to land. Increasingly, the, with the blatant awareness and increasingly unavoidable evidence of the harmfulness and violence of the allegiance between capitalist accumulation and the killing of our planet, indigenous and afro diasporic peoples Are refusing to accept the precondition of relating to land as object and property as a requirement for healing through reconciliation. Reconciliation does not mean either healing the land or healing ourselves, because the non-Western cosmologies I am interested in exploring do not presuppose such a separation in the first place. Cosmology refers to more than a worldview or perspective. Cosmology refers to the relationality and narratives implicated in the creation and working of the cosmos. Cosmologies um, cosmologies embrace and include all of the ologies we as humans consider to be important and indicative of our relationships, meanings, and existences, such as epistemology, ontology, metaphysics, ethics, science, and the like. Cosmologies are often accompanied by narratives that give meaning and guidance to the ordering of our worlds and perspectives usually taking the form of origin or orienting stories and creation myths. These origin or orienting stories and creation myths often include much important information that is helpful for guiding and orienting relations not only among human communities, but also among humans and the rest of the cosmos. Many times, indigenous origin stories and creation myths contain and reference what are called original instructions. You might think of these original instructions as relational blueprints for enacting and relating rightly or blueprints for right relations. However, it is important to keep in mind that these original instructions are conveyed in narratives that can be be and are interpreted differently in different context, settings, and times um, so that these stories or narratives are alive. So while the thrust of the instructions is similar, the relational blueprints they convey and articulate are not static or unchanging. This implies and indeed requires a flexibility, and openness to change, attuned and sensitive to changing conditions, especially ecological conditions. For example, it is told that the Anishinaabe were instructed in the first prophecy to journey to an ecological setting or land where food grows on water. These instructions initiated a migration journey westward where eventually the Anishinaabe came upon the ecological bounty of manumen, wild rice, food that grows on water. This interpretation of instructions and migration facilitated a relationship to what we now understand as Anishinaabe lands, also commonly referred to as the Great Lakes Basin of the United States and Canada. Additionally, the Anishinaabe creation or origin story narrates Sky Woman falling from the sky uh, world to Earth and being aided in making her new home by a whole family of more than human relations such as geese, turtles, muskrats, and more. Sky Woman brought seeds from Skyworld, and, importantly, was also pregnant. She relied on the gifts she brought with her and worked to facilitate relations and responsibilities to the other persons she encountered in the, in the New World below. In reflecting on this origin story, Robin Wall Kimmerer stresses details of the story, such as the fact that Sky Woman was a stranger and migrant who nonetheless practiced responsibility, reciprocity, and generosity which was also modeled to her by relations by the relations she encountered on Earth. These details importantly convey a set of original instructions for how humans and the more-than-human world should and can interact to work toward right relations and balance. Similarly, in an iteration of the Yoruba creation story, land or Earth is created through a collaboration of the gods or orishas from the originary conditions of sky above and water or marshland below. Through collaboration and gifts, the gods come together to craft a plan and bring together materials to create dry land. The materials are a gold chain, a snail shell filled with sand, a black cat, a white pen, and a palm nut, all carried in a sack. The god Obatala descended on the chain and when he was close enough to the water and marshland below, was constructed to pour sand out of the snail shell, which created dry land. Once Obatala was on dry land, he planted the palm seed and the earth began to populate with flora. He harvested and drank palm wine and created other beings to keep himself company, which would come to populate the land. However, his drunkenness created conflict with Olukun, god of all below the sky, who had not consulted, who he had not consulted with for consent or permission to populate the land in this way. When Obatala returned to the sky world to visit, Olukun summoned powerful waves to uh, to surge the dry land, drowning many beings. Through sacrifice, entreaty, and compromise between the gods and other earthly beings, the waters retreated, the land of Yoruba, Africa, emerged after the recession of the floods. Here we find important details that emphasize ceremony, permission or consent, responsibility, and gifts as well. The primary role of collaboration and communication for right relations that maintain harmony and balance are paramount. The gods have different responsibilities related to their gifts, such as water and sky. The land and water's conditions can also change rapidly when relations are out of balance, such as the conflict that arises when communication, collaboration, and consent are ignored through drunkenness. Thank you. In both iterations, respectively, of the Anishinaabe and yoruba origin and creation stories, the narrative and relations between worlds and beings serves as a blueprint or metaphor for right relations. Each of these teachings are grounded in cosmologies and cosmovisions that conceive of land in distinct ways as alive, not only in the sense of ecological or physical connections or systems, although that also applies, but also propose and understand land as the physical, human, and non-human, as well as the spiritual, uh, different worlds or realms. In this way, the worlds, while distinct, are also importantly coterminous with each other and fundamentally related or relational. This is deeply significant because it reveals a conception of land and land relations that is greatly distinct from the Enlightenment conceptions of land and earth as scientific object, as well as global capitalist economic conceptions of land as fungible commodity. In this way, the non-dominant and non-Western conceptions of land and land relating embedded in Anishinaabe and Yoruba cosmologies, among many others not mentioned here, point to incommensurable ontologies and epistemologies of land that cannot and will not be reduced or understood in dominant Western cosmologies deemed universal and trafficked across the globe. What this means for the purposes of transcultural processes of reconciliation that are still firmly lodged in dominant Western frameworks of understanding and being is profound, and it is the topic um, to which this paper now turns. What I mean when I say that conceptions of land and relating to land, or land relations, are incommensurable across cosmologies and traditions, is not merely the colloquial understanding that they are incompatible but that they are distinct ways of being and knowing that cannot be interchanged. Within the dominant frameworks of Western Eurocentric, ratiocentric ways of being and knowing, a singular and place-based system has been deemed falsely universal and trafficked around the globe through processes historical and continuous, such as colonialism and imperialism. A key misunderstanding and false premise of these same Western dominant frameworks is the idea that everything there is ultimately everything there is is ultimately translatable or reducible to this model. In this way, this cosmological purview is not understood as one of many, but as the cosmological purview through which all else must ultimately submit and be known. This framework has included within it similar um, assimilationist and identitarian logics to land, such that land is understood as an object or commodity that is inert and without agency. Under this understanding, humans, the subjects, relate to the o- land, the object, as agents, thus superiors, and no matter the variance or difference of land in its actual qualities, the relationship of dominance is prescribed as unchanging and eternally so. Thus, subjecthood defined in the Euro-Western tradition as exceptional agency qua dominance and superiority is coded into the dominant paradigm as an ontological presupposition and fact. However, as we see from the Anishinaabe and Yoruba origin origin and creation stories, and as we can clearly see from the simple use of our perceptual senses, land and how we relate to it, indeed what is required to relate to distinct landscapes, is not a certain or eternal prescription, but a relational, changing, and unfolding process that is never complete. This is both true of lands that one is familiar with over time. Um, as well as lands that one is unfamiliar or relatively new to. These non-dominant cosmologies, ontologies, and epistemologies give space to both the agency and indeterminacy of lands and relations. As the origin and creation stories live through telling, their directions are called to adapt and change to the process and context of land. This requires flexibility and dynamism that stands in stark contrast to the thingification, objectification, and universalization that many Western euro cosmologies and frameworks um, hope to achieve. Uh, what this means is that uh, reconciliation is not and cannot be a thing or commodity that we achieve or obtain through the business-as-usual routines of colonial and neoliberal relations. This means that there is no one-size-reconciliation-fits-all or that simply going through the motions of prescribed reconciliation processes made and enacted by the same systems that caused and continuously caused the harm, and checking boxes will get the job done. Rematriation of land is indeed a fundamental requirement of reconciliation processes stated and enforced by the sovereignty of indigenous nations. However, rematriation is not and cannot be understood as merely a capitalist exchange and means of access to commodification. This is wrongheaded precisely because it uses the calculus and understandings of value as dictated by the same system, the settler colonial nation-state, to achieve justice and in the same breath pronounces justice as achieved and sufficient. Thank you.
2: So I'll, I'll begin with a, a disclaimer. Uh, the, the paper is very much in its early stages in terms of research and writing, and so I I very much welcome your your comments and your suggestions. The title of the paper is Reconciliation Rights and Duties. Uh, The paper examines the relationship between reconciliation, obligations, and trust in the context of settler state colonialism. My motivation is the belief that trust is an important element of reconciliation, but that trust can oftentimes be in short supply in settler states. Now, when we think about reconciliation and justice, and what justice requires, in the context of settler state colonialism, we often think about rights and entitlements. Naturally, rights to land, rights to resources, rights to self-determination, and the like, all come to mind. But concerns about trust are difficult to fit in a rights framework. After all, it seems a bit odd to say that one has a right to be trusted, or that one is entitled to trust. From this view, A right centered account of reconciliation may not get us all the way or where we wanna go. By contrast, I think, or I don't think that it's strange to speak about one having a duty to act in a trustworthy manner, or more simply, the duty to be trustworthy. The basic idea here is that when our concern is reconciliation, it may be better to start with the question, what duties exist, and what do we do, or what do we need to do in order to fulfill these duties, rather than to ask what rights exist and how are these rights distributed? With this in mind, the paper aims to illustrate that a focus on duties instead of rights may provide a fruitful avenue for including trust in our accounts of reconciliation. The paper pursues this end by making the case for a trust-related obligation that is held by all non-Indigenous people residing in settler states. In the paper, I somewhat unimaginably call this duty the duty to become trustworthy. So I'll outline the structure of the paper, uh, kind of give you a roadmap of of the steps so far, uh, and then I'll talk about uh, some, some parts of the paper in more detail. In part one of the paper, I focus on reconciliation and trust. First, I discuss some of the tensions between the concepts of reconciliation and decolonization. My aim here is to mount a bit of a defense of reconciliation. I think that there are still some advantages to employing the concept of reconciliation, when our concern is settler states. Then relying heavily on the work of Patty Leonard, which I didn't realize she was gonna be here when I originally started writing the paper, I outline a concept of trust and explain how settler state colonialism has led to a trust deficit in settler states. In part two of the paper, I examine right-centered and duty-centered approaches to theorizing concepts like reconciliation. I argue that right-centered approaches are good at capturing rights when our concern is justice. But right-centered approaches are not ideal at capturing all of the relevant duties. And then in part three of the paper, I outline two types of duties that would be part of a duty-centered approach. Specifically, I explain the differences between perfect duties, so duties with corresponding rights, and imperfect duties, duties without corresponding rights. My primary aim, in this part of the paper is to illustrate that settler state colonialism generates both perfect and imperfect duties. At the end of the paper, I sketch the broad outlines of an imperfect duty to become trustworthy that is held by all non-Indigenous people living in settler states. The purpose of sketching out this imperfect duty is twofold. First, I hope to illustrate that trust can have an important place in our accounts of reconciliation if we focus on duties. So we should, we should view trust should view trust-related obligations with the same gravity as we view rights-related obligations. Second, I believe that talking about trust as a duty also provides some guidance about how to address the trust deficit in settler states because agents who hold these duties can be identified. In this particular instance, the duty to become trustworthy belongs to non-Indigenous people, so they have to do the heavy lifting when it comes to building trust in settler states. So I realize that there are a lot of moving parts here um, I'll just I'll talk now about some of the kind of uh, major parts of the argument so part one engages mostly with the concept of reconciliation and trust for the moment I'll focus on what I mean by trust and the link between the trust deficit and settler state colonialism according to Patty Leonard trust is an element of human relations that is sometimes that is something that one extends to or receives from another, which both, which contains both an attitudinal and a behavioral, both attitudinal and behavioral elements. Here the behavioral, uh, the behavior in question is that we make ourselves vulnerable. So we risk disappointment when we trust because we can't be sure that whoever we're trusting will not let us down. And the attitude in question is a willingness to behave in this fashion. By trust deficit, I basically mean a severe version of what Leonard uh, uh, has in mind when he talks about group distrust. On her view, group distrust is an environment in which individual members of a group adopt a distrustful attitude towards members of another group. So Leonard advances that there are three contributing factors to group distrust. The first is severity of trust violations. The second is frequency of trust violations. And the third is a power dynamic in which one party chooses to abuse or misuse its greater numerical or, uh, and political influence. In the paper I argue that settler state coloni- colonialism enabled the development of this power dynamic in settler states and facilitated the all too frequent and severe violations of trust by indigenous, sorry, experienced by indigenous peoples at the hands of non-indigenous peoples. In short, the claim here is that the trust deficit is a product of southern state colonialism. Moreover, I'm of the view that this deficit of trust is a problem. It's a problem because all social projects require trust, and reconciliation is no exception. In part two of the paper, I attempt to make a case that focusing on rights instead of duties can sometimes be problematic, or that sometimes it matters. So following the work of Ornara O'Neill, I argue that right-centered approaches, even ones with the significant, that include significant discussion of duties uh, that correspond to rights, run the risk of leaving out important duties. The argument here is that duties that don't correspond to rights are sometimes hard to see. Or stated somewhat differently, right-centered approaches are good at tracking perfect duties, so duties that correspond to rights, but are not so good at tracking imperfect duties or duties that don't have rights. In part three of the paper, i outline the major differences between perfect and imperfect duties. I also discuss the differences between universal and specific perfect and imperfect duties. And I provide general examples of each, as well as examples that are relevant to the context of settler state colonialism. At the moment, I'll just talk about the perfect and imperfect duties that are relevant in the context of settler state colonialism. I'll just give you an example. So settler state colonialism created a distinct relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples in many different parts of the world, and the relationship is unjust in a variety of ways. What is important for the purposes of this paper is that this relationship of injustice, with all of its associated wrongs, is the origin of numerous distinct duties. Some of these duties, like the duty to return land, have corresponding rights. In uh, in this case, the decision to focus on duties, rights rather than duties, or vice versa, is not really problematic. Um, That is, right-centered approaches and duty-centered approaches can both capture uh, these types of duties. However, some of the duties coming out of settler state colonialism don't have corresponding rights. Here, the decision to focus on rights risks leaving out these duties. Okay, so how is this related to trust? In the paper, I argue that settler state colonialism is marked by serious violations of trust that have resulted in a trust deficit in settler states. If trust is necessary for reconciliation, and I believe that it is, then trust must be built in order to advance the cause of reconciliation. In the paper, I put forward that in the context of settler state colonialism, the work of building trust should be shouldered by non-Indigenous persons. And I think that there are two reasons that support this position. First, non-Indigenous people belong to the group that engaged in the trust violations that created and sustained uh, the created and sustains the trust deficit in settler states. So as a result, they have a responsibility to fix the problem because it's a problem of their making or the making of their, of their group. Second, non-Indigenous peoples belong to the group that benefited and continue to benefit from these trust violations. We usually don't think that people should benefit from injustice. As a result, we could say that the benefits derived by non-Indigenous peoples from these trust violations puts them on the hook. So they must now pay the costs associated with addressing the trust deficit. So because of these reasons, non-Indigenous people have a duty to become trustworthy uh, and thereby uh, address the trust deficit. At this point, there's a significant gap in the argument. I haven't included a discussion in the paper of how the duty to become trustworthy could be put into practice or operationalized, and I realize that this is a a serious problem. and so this is the kind of the next step for me is to figure out exactly what would uh, a duty to become trustworthy look like. Um, so what, do, what, do these, what does this type of duty entail? Uh, I have some rough thoughts. Uh, I'm not going to talk about them in the presentation. I can, I can air my rough thoughts if you'd like during the, the questions. Uh, but uh, they're not really fully formed at this point. So that's the next step for me. I'll, include, I'll conclude my presentation with these following kind of summary thoughts. I believe that trust is an important part of reconciliation. Thus, in the paper, I attempt to make the case that we should think about trust as a duty. I think that focusing on trust, on um, duties instead of rights, is a way of rendering the trust related duty, duty visible, or these trust related duties visible, and uh, highlighting their importance. I think that the language of rights and duties has a certain degree of normative heft. And so talking about trust as a duty is one way to signal its importance uh, in work on reconciliation. And I believe that trust—that uh, the trust deficit in settler states won't simply go away. Uh, there's serious work that needs to be done. And I also think that if non-Indigenous peoples acknowledge the existence of a duty to become trustworthy and act it accordingly, whatever this, end up in, this, end up, this ends up entailing, that some of this work might be accomplished. Thank you.
3: to be clear, I'm not Avery Kohlers. Um, I'm going to deliver Avery's paper uh, in a version that I edited down uh, for for him. So if there are gaps in the way this is presented, um, please don't hesitate to ask. If you didn't have a chance to read the paper, um, then I think I can sort of tell you what I left out. But um, there's there's a lot of potential room for slippage here. Um, So I just want to have that as a caveat in fairness to Avery. His daughter had uh, her appendix removed yesterday, and so he was unable to travel. Um, And so he gave her permission to do this, but um, slippages and so on uh, are are my responsibility rather than Avery's. Um, So I'm just going to read elements of Avery's paper here. So, my purpose in this essay is to investigate the relevance and the role of the concept of reconciliation in the project of decolonization and fostering indigenous resurgence, and the transition to democracy in settler colonial states. The basic problem of reconciliation is that it allows the oppressor off the hook without full restitution, compensation, or reparation. In order to be genuine, reconciliation has to be an outcome that not only profoundly changes relations between indigenous populations and surrounding states, but also ushers in a fundamental shift in the institutional framework of the settler state. This would be unlikely enough if the broader non-Indigenous population had a large and expanding appetite for decolonization. But, unfortunately, this seems unrealistic. And if real reconciliation has to involve decolonization in any meaningful sense, there's virtually no form of real reconciliation a democratically elected settler state government could embark upon and survive electorally. So reconciliation, it seems, cannot be real unless it's impossible. And the scope of reconciliation that is possible... Is just going to be a a settler move to innocence. This is going to do the opposite of accomplishing reconciliation. This dilemma is not just fodder for realist political thought about backlash, but has important ideal ideal theory aspects to it as well. In the first instance, we don't yet know what decolonization looks like, nor do we know how to actually achieve it. No one on the indigenous side seems to think that uh, full decolonization requires evacuation of non-indigenous peoples. What exactly does the relationship between peoples look like on the other side of the transition, Then, Who will own the land, or will land not be owned as such? How will the claims of different people get constitutionalized, and so on? There are many other questions of this ideal theory kind. Because of the backlash problem, reconciliation has to be a process that can be embarked upon by skeptical people feeling their way in the dark. And we'll have to build support and buy-in as it goes along. Reconciliation processes have to somehow generate their own support while they are underway and not further away their accomplishments once the process is concluded. From an ideal theoretic perspective, it has to yield new forms of political agency, ones we cannot theorize precisely in advance, yet which result in something that indigenous peoples can reasonably see, a genuine decolonization and liberation. My question here is whether and how the idea of reconciliation can help us think through what this entails. So, after briefly saying something about reconciliation in its most familiar form, I want to consider an individual and collective accomplishment of, quote, reconciliation to our social world, wherein we see our social worlds reflecting and affirming our nature, and a communal and confessional process of rituals and reconciliation, where contending groups explicitly institute procedures for overcoming biases and assumptions that set them at odds. So, Before getting underway in earnest, I want to say something about an additional motivation for this project. This is a puzzlement about what makes territorial loss such a bad thing itself. So what's what's so bad about displacement or loss of homeland? This question raises a fundamental challenge for theories of territorial rights. A person might or might not have a right to a place where they live, but if they live there and their family or community has done so for, say, two generations or more, then it stands to reason that their compulsory departure would entail some kind of loss for them, and that the badness of this loss merits public recognition. And preventing such losses is part of the point of a theory of territorial rights. This thought has seemed so obvious to many theorists of territory that they have held that if the current generation is innocent of expulsion of others, they may not be expelled in turn. If you can grab and hold long enough to reproduce, it seems, your kids at least are in the clear. But why should this be? Why is losing territory so bad, why is the capacity to remain in place, if personally innocent of prior expulsion, so important? Although I can't make a full argument for the point here, I believe that theorists of territorial rights have been unable to really account for the badness of the loss of home and homeland. Such an account needs to be given if territorial rights theories are, so to speak, get off the ground. Because territory would seem to matter principally because people have a right not to be expelled, or a right to stay, or a right to place. And because territory is in some, guarantee, in some sense a guarantee of a right to place, What, however, grounds this right? In other words, what's so bad about displacement? After all, people move all the time. Nor does it matter much to our future welfare, whether our moves are voluntary. Some 11 million people were displaced after World War II, but for the most part, their descendants only one generation later, or less, were able to reconstruct meaningful and productive lives in new places. Somehow the intergenerational trauma did not prevent their gaining ground in new places, chosen or otherwise. This is true of economic migrants and refugees in every generation. In short, when we lose cultures, languages, communities, we adapt. We're resilient animals. Often we don't just bounce back, but bounce forward, not only as individuals, but culturally too. These are good things. But if so, then what's wrong on balance with the loss of home, place, territory, and culture? Attempted explanations of this harm by scholars of territorial rights, my past self very much included, have not been successful. These explanations advert to individual and relational features that are relatively easy to overcome, all things considered, would be inexpensive to compensate if we tried. Moreover, even so, insofar as these proposals explain the wrong of new territorial displacements, these proposals tend to make it very difficult to explain how territorial justice can require looking backwards to historical wrongs, to both challenge the legitimacy of the territorial status quo and avoid generating a moral hazard in favor of those who grab and hold. Hence, my ul- ulterior motive: an obvious clue to the harm of territorial loss lies in taking seriously who it is that seems today to have suffered this wrong in the past in a way that compels us to morally repair it now. The people today who have actionable, compelling claims regarding past or ongoing territorial loss are, most prominently, indigenous peoples in colonial states and in states that are encroaching on indigenous traditional lands and Palestinians. Why do these particular peoples seem to have actionable claims when others who were displaced at the same time or even more recently do not? Many territorial rights theorists have tried to answer these questions by figuring out a criterion for setting a statute of limitations on historical claims. But as we can see by juxtaposing the 1950s Mizrahi Israelis to the 1940 Palestinians, the mere passage of time does not seem sufficient to do the trick. Borrowing Hegel's notion of reconciliation, I want to suggest that the challenge for territorial rights is not where your homeland is or was, or even how long you have been in or away from your home but what it takes for wherever you are to become where you are at home. In other words, territorial rights theorists have been barking up the tree of permanent natural rights that ground unchallenged sovereignty when a better alternative lies in the concept of reconciliation. Reconciliation is not only complex, it is highly contentious, particularly in settler colonial contexts. And with good reason, as it seemed to ask, may, uh, ask for an easy payoff without the hard investment. So it must be theorized carefully in order to be both worthy of pursuing, uh, to be worthy of pursuing in its own right, I want to air here three concepts of recon- reconciliation, each of which suggests different procedures and goals, but all three of which together might guide us toward conceptions of reconciliation that do not merely mask set the roots to innocence. So the first model, and uh, there's just a, a very brief amount of this. Um, much has been written on truth and reconciliation efforts between peoples with a history of colonial and racist domination, and intercommunal conflict and oppression. This idea has been adapted in a large number of contexts, including, of course, that of the Canadian state. Although reconciliation in this sense takes many forms, there's a basic structure that's well known. The victims of repression are given a chance to speak and are listened to and have their experience affirmed as true and documented as the real history of the state. The government and other agencies and individuals then apologize, repair is undertaken in some form, and the quote-unquote former oppressors and the formerly oppressed move together into the future. At least as they have been implemented, these TRC processes do seem to amount to moves to innocence because they offer the chance for the state to get away clean, giving only limited and inexpensive concessions. In a detailed review of four cases of reconciliation with apology, uh, Jeff Corntassel and Cindy Holder uh, uh, examined eight criteria of successful political apologies and showed that in each of these cases, at least several of the criteria were lacking. Even where they were all present, this wouldn't seem to be enough in many instances, so we need something more robust moving to a second way of conceptualizing reconciliation. Um, and this one, this one and the next are drawn from the work of Hegel um, by uh, uh, Molly Farneth. In a recent book, Molly Farneth offers a, reason, a reading of Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, in which meaningful change occurs when a community of social groups driven by profound normative conflicts accepts an ongoing structure of rituals of reconciliation. It's a specific phrasing. The apology reconciliation process, as it has been enacted by settler states, Fails from the outset because the settler posits its former or past representatives as a consciousness that did wrong, so as to posit okay, its, its current consciousness, its current self and representatives um, in the role of innocence. Um, the, this, this seems to be a mistake. The Hegelian model seems to require that one recognize one's own um, current wrongdoing and be the first to confess not just past wrongs, but continuing wrongs. Um, it requires a kind of act of faith of stepping forward and saying, We have been wrong, we continue to be wrong, we are unfortunately likely to continue to be wrong. So, how would this work in the current context? It would involve a confession that comes prior to an institutionalized process of truth telling. That is, the settler state would undertake its own investigation and recognize that its intentions were impure, and more fundamentally, that its intentions are no basis for assessing the merits of the behavior. This investigation recounting and publication of the crimes from the state's perspective is the speech act that initiates the confession. Nor can the state yet promise non-repetition because it has not yet figured out a way to stop doing what it has been doing. Indeed, the very real fear of backlash means the initial stage is necessarily tenuous and the state ought to be clear about that. A rejectionist government could be elected and reverse the whole process. For this reason, it may be required to attempt to constitutionalize the process. A separate charter of confession might be added to the Constitution. Once this act of confession has been made, what comes after is material implementation an act of faith. Some implements of material implementation can be done at this stage, um, but it's really too early to do much because so far only one side has spoken. So the first material implementation is the creation of forums and agencies through which indigenous peoples are able to recount the truth as they know it. but further down the road, the process becomes clear, and start, it becomes clear what exactly forms of material implementation we require from the state. So the material aspect of confession develops over time across an iterated process of verbal confession, material implementation, indictment, more verbal confession, more concrete material implementation, more indictment. Finally, the third element of the state's confession, the act of faith, is re- refraining from expecting anything in return. This maps onto the apology criterion of not demanding forgiveness. So what is the ultimate target of this? Farnett's model suggests a communal method for the project of reconciliation. TR processes should not seek to incorporate Indigenous peoples into the state or presuppose that we are all going into the future together. Instead, they should engage the state in a confessional feedback loop that makes verbal and concrete progress toward repair and restoration without ever asking as yet for forgiveness or for presuming that indigenous peoples will be part of the settler colonial state at the end of this process. Um, it's impossible to specify in advance any material sense of what this decolonized society looks like, but it may not be impossible to say something about what a society feels like, and in turn, what it would take for feelings to be apt. And here we need to adopt another Hegelian con- condition, namely reconciliation to our social world which comes to the same thing as being at home in the world. To become reconciled to one's social world is to endorse it both for its opportunities and limitations, to freely choose this world for all its faults. It does not forswear political struggle, but rather is the condition under which struggles are worth engaging in. In this respect, it is incompatible with thinking that a revolutionary overthrow of the current regime is necessary. So it's the condition under which one ought to feel like a reformer rather than a revolutionary. That is, one is reconciled to their social world when they think not that their social world is perfectly just, but when they affirm it as a legitimate field of struggle in which one can reasonably work for justice. The ability to be reconciled to one's social world is a precondition for an ability to feel as though it is a place one should stay and struggle for justice. Justice requires not only just institutions, but a social atmosphere, which fosters each person's sense of being at home in their social world. The character of this world has to be shaped through the reiterative process of reconciliation that progressively brings about restitution and reparation. Hence, it gels with Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang's conception of decolonization, which is a process whose endpoint we don't yet know, which requires a radical overhaul of many very basic institutions. Yet, at the same time, it, provide a sketch, it provides a sketch of what needs to be materially and psychosocially accomplished before we can say that reconciliation has occurred or is occurring. By setting up an individual right to the social conditions, enabling reconciliation to our social world, and the collective duty of settler states to provide these conditions insofar as they can, we inaugurate a process that has a realistic chance of building buy-in and affirmation, even as it constructs a new future where people meet on equal terms and no one finds themselves alien. i got about three sentences. Um, um, it may be that as part of this iterative process, the peoples de- determine they cannot move together move forward together on the model of social groups within the same political system, but that they may need to chart some alternative course of greater separation. And settler states cannot insist that this outcome be blockaded uh, from the very beginning then. We cannot then say how this process will end. We can, however, say what it should feel like when it does. Indigenous peoples will be able to feel at home in the political world as it is in terms they can endorse on their own. Not terms dictated by settler states. On
0: Miguel Nyawa, and thank you for listening to episode five, The Ontologies of Land. Episode six is part two of our two-part discussion entitled Interacting with the State, which emphasizes different legal regimes which guide our contemporary relationships between indigenous peoples and the state. Part 2 features discussions on the duty to consult Métis land claims and legal definitions of sovereignty and territory. The Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Project is funded by the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and Forsingsgradet, the Research Council of Norway. We would also like to thank the Department of Political Studies and the Centre for the Study of Democracy and Diversity at Queen's University and Globalizing Minority Rights at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, for their sponsorship and organizational support. Special thank you to CFRC Kingston for their assistance in coordinating this podcast and to traditional artist, Patty Kusterock.